Morning, y'all. Boy, that got me. That was loud. Uh, happy to have you. I'm happy to have you like I own this place. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you have me. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We're off to a great start. Um, I'm, my name is Daryl, the assistant pastor uh, over at our 12th South Congregation, and I was looking through our preaching schedule, and I saw that Jeremy was working way too hard because this is the kind of guy I am. I said, hey, won't you let me jump in for you? And he didn't want to originally, but then he said yes. Um, <laughs> it's my first time preaching at Creve Hall, so this is, this is really fun for me. Um, hey, look at that. Look at that. It's not my first time in Creve Hall. I cut through here about four times a day. Uh, from my house to the office, but uh, certainly it feels good to stop and, and spend some time with y'all. Uh, we've been in uh, the book of Revelation together for the last few weeks. Uh, each week we've camped out uh, on different themes that we might see uh, in the book of Revelation, and we looked at how Christ's position in heaven really does dictate and uh, inform all of history. Uh, so his place and his position in heaven uh, the letters that he wrote to his churches, we've looked at this great paradox that exists that how can Jesus be both lion and a lamb? How is he both justice and mercy? How is he both God and man? How does he hold both these things in tension and not crush under the weight of those? Um, because when we try to hold those things, we, we often crumble. And so we see Jesus is the only one capable of doing such a thing. And then we see how uh, the church uh, is also in this paradox of uh, we inherit the earth, uh, the church is victorious, but the church also suffers. Uh, we also live um, in the midst of a sinful world, and so how do we operate uh, within all that? So that's kind of where we bring ourselves to this morning, where we look at uh, what is worship? Uh, what is this thing that we just did, singing songs? Is it more than that? It's certainly not less than that. And so where, um, where do we get this idea that we gather weekly uh, to worship the Lord. So that's kind of where we're going to go um, in our time together, uh, looking at a few different verses. But before we jump into all that, uh, I would like to invite up my friend Catherine Singleton to come and read these verses. I said friend, I've actually never met her. Hey, Catherine. That's me. You seem nice. Hey, let's read Revelation 5. Well, we have three different passages, so I'll let you just look up at the screen. Yep. All right, here we go. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Catherine. You're really good at that. You want to come to us house? You're really good. <laughs> Fine. Hey, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we do uh, stand in awe of who you are uh, this morning. Um, but also, Lord, if I can be honest with people I don't know, um, I'm a little annoyed by it. Um, it's hard. It's hard to get up. It's hard to worship sometimes. Uh, it's hard to want to. Uh, Lord, we're hurting. We're sad. Uh, we come into a room like this with uh, just a myriad of emotions. Some good, some terrible, uh, and yet you rule over all of them. Uh, so Jesus, would you be um, so very kind to us this morning? Uh, have mercy on us uh, as we look at uh, the very words of life. That's uh, your name, I do pray. Amen. So the passage that Catherine just read uh, really tells us something that you likely already know. Uh, and if you don't already know, it's something you certainly practice. Uh, it's certainly it's something you practice this uh, because you're not a human who happens to worship. You are a worshiper who happens to be human. Uh, and at this moment, at the very center of heaven lies this missional community of worshipers who are delighting in God and being delighted in by him. And this worship flows from the mercy seat down to everything that has ever existed, ever. And so the story of earth is really a story of worship. If worship is central to the universe, uh, and because worship is central to the universe, I would say, uh, that means that it is central to who you are. Um, so it's not a question of do you worship, it's a question of what is it that you worship? Uh, and for the Christian, uh, Jesus is the one who fills that blank for his glory and for our good. Uh, so we're going to look at three things uh, from this passage this morning. We're going to look at worship is at the center of history, uh, worship is at the center of humanity, and then what do we do with this? Um, it's at the, the center of history, the center of humanity, uh, and what does that mean for us? So let's dive into our first point. Worship is at the center of history. If we look again back at chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, John is swooped up into this uh, vision that is given to him by Jesus, revealing to him what happens in the throne room. Uh, the throne room is the center of it all. Um, whatever your idea and imagination is of heaven, this is what John wants us to do. He wants us to kind of bring our sanctified imagination as we read this. And so as we think of what heaven looks like, in the very center of it all is this throne room where uh, the Godhead dwells. And um, central to this throne room for the context here is uh, the lamb that was slain. Jeremy uh, hopefully preached on this a couple weeks ago, uh, that in the center of it all stands Jesus who makes sense of it all. And so that's the scene that John is being swept up into um, and John has dropped us into it here, and he wants us to know that this is the reason that you got up this morning. Because if it's not, and if this isn't true, then we all need to go back to bed. 
But if this is true, then it says something about how we are to move and to live and to have our being. And Jesus has been found to be the only one worthy to open this scroll. Uh, This is what's happening here in chapter 5. The scroll of human history uh, has been presented to all of heaven. And John sees it. He starts weeping. But heaven bursts into these shouts of praise uh, because the angel tells John there is someone who can open this. There's someone who can make sense of God's story of redemptive history on the earth. Uh, and it's this, li- this lamb who was slain, who's also this lion of Judah, that the tears and the terror of knowing that God has a plan for human history. He has it. He wrote it. He can unpack it. It's all there for us. And if he has history on a scroll in his hand, that means that he has you in his hand. And because of this, the angels fly around the throne and they scream, holy, holy, holy is he, worthy is he. John said in verse 13 that he heard everything with a heartbeat rejoicing over this fact. He says, it dripped down to all the creatures. They're all flying around. They're all screaming holy. Everyone's worshiping. Everything that has breath, everything that has a heartbeat is saying, finally, finally we can make sense of all this. Finally, redemption is coming to all of us. We're worshipers who happen to be human because everything worships. Psalm, the psalmist tells us that the trees clap their hands in worship. Paul tells us that all of creation groans for redemption. The dirt that you step on longs to be redeemed, and at the center of heaven lies this promise that it's all true. And heaven erupts because of it. And in this eternal story of the Godhead who were together before all of creation Worship has always existed and has always been the mission of the Trinity. Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet, tells us that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, we'll get more into that here in a few weeks, but I want you to to see that this passage, what John wants us to see is that worship is as normal to heaven, it's as natural to heaven uh, as breathing is to us. It's just like blinking. It just happens. And if you're anything like me, I look at this statement and I think, of course it is. Because they don't have to pay taxes in heaven. Of course it's, of course it's what they do. They don't have to sit in kid drop-off lines. Of course it's what they do. They don't have to drive on I-24. They don't have to watch Ryan Tannehill throw three interceptions. They don't have to get yogurt pouches for a toddler. Of course. Of course they're, they're worshiping. They don't have anything wrong up there. But what does that have to do with me? What's that have to do with me, Daryl, coming into my house, yelling at me? I got a job. I got a yard to mow. I got kids to raise. I don't have time to sit around worshiping. I don't have time to even think about this. I would love to have an hour to think about what heaven's like. But I'm changing diapers. If worship is central to, to heaven, John wants us to see that it's central to who we are. Because the longing for heaven is in all of us. So that must mean that the longing to worship is in all of us. Let's bring us to our second point. Worship is central to who we are. If we look at verses 14, 6, and 7, this angel swoops down when John is taken on this crazy Aladdin magic carpet ride look at heaven. And this angel comes in and he says, or she says, I'm not sure, worship God who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, worship God because he made everything. Worship God because he made everything. I was reading it this week in preparation for this. Not a ton of preparation. I don't want to brag. 
But as I was reading it this week in preparation for this, I was like, what if I don't feel like it? What if I don't feel like doing that, angel? So the angel is making this presupposition. The angel, when it tells the world to worship God, when it tells John to worship God, the angel is presupposing something about us. That's that we already are worshiping. We're already worshiping. The angels is coming in and telling us where to direct it so we don't die. We're already worshiping something. And I thought, again, what if I don't feel like worshiping? I don't even know if that's true. And then Justin Timberlake teased that there might be an NSYNC reunion. And then I jumped on Instagram real quick. We all worship something. Worship is as natural to who we are as blinking or breathing. The Bible assumes this about you. You already know how to worship. It doesn't have to be taught to you. It doesn't have to be taught to us. We already know how to do this. The reason the angel tells us to worship God is because we worship everything else. That the Bible is this grand story of God getting his people to turn from idols and back to himself. And because worship is that vital and it goes awry that fast, the angel has to come in, the Lord has to come in, Jesus has to come in and direct our worship. Otherwise, we're going to destroy everything. Worship is dangerous. That's what the Bible wants us to see here. It's like a baby with a chainsaw. We have... We have something powerful in our hands, and we don't know what we're doing with it. This is why idolatry always takes us down. This is why idolatry always wins, y'all. It's so much easier. It's so much easier. I can control it. Paul tells us in Romans we always do the thing that we don't want to do. And so if worship is central to heaven and worship is central to who we are, and worship is just something that we kind of do via reflex, then Jesus is showing us you got to turn our worship to him. Because when we turn our worship to anything else, he calls that idolatry. Now, I don't know if any of us woke up this morning and lit incense and bowed down to Joe Boo from Major League or to Buddha or to Tucker Carlson. I don't know, I don't know who or what it is um, that kind of occupies that seat in your heart. Jesus knows that. But our idols are always, they're always a little more acceptable. We don't wake up lighting incense. We're too classy for that. We cloak them in security. We cloak them in provision. We cloak them in having a good family. But when Jesus sees them, he sees them for what they are. And then he comes to us and he tells us, but there's grace for you. Just turn. Turn from that worship. Turn back to me. When we think about our idols and we think about the worship of Jesus, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we see just how absurd it really is that this grace of Jesus that was displayed and demonstrated to us in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection is this 200-proof grace that comes with us like a fire hose and it covers you in the righteousness of Christ and washes you clean from the dirty sin done by you and done to you. And that grace comes in and it transforms our hearts And then we're given this mandate and this message to go in the world and share this with everyone else. And as we grow in sanctification, as we grow in our love for Jesus, we start to see those idols be toppled. And we feel this revival within us. And we see this revival in our community. And we see our churches start to grow. And that you can stand redeemed in front of the God of the universe and appeal the work of Jesus on your behalf. And he accepts you as if you had never sinned nor had been a sinner. 
And then we look at our idols and we're like, that's good, but this is better. That's cool, but I really like Doritos. And that's good, but like my kids got to eat. I really like being a workaholic. If we stop for a second, we can see how absurd that really is. That if we try to add anything to this gospel that Jesus comes and gives to us, it actually ceases to be the gospel at all. If we try to fill that seat in our heart with something other than Jesus, thinking it's going to give us life, it's going to cause our own demise. It isn't God that we worship. It's convenience. It's comfort. Y'all, I'm saying, your boy loves comfort. I love it. Too much. I hate these chairs. <laughs> I saw Sid had his own cushions. So I was like, how do I get those? <laughs> the comfort is this idol. And when I get stressed, it's what I run to instead of running to Jesus. I don't run to scripture. I run to a podcast. Maybe Rogan can make sense of this. I don't run to scripture. I run to, I run to chips. And I tack those like there's diamonds in the bottom. I'm looking for something. <laughs> and I don't know what those idols might be for you. Again, Jesus knows what those are. Jeremy probably knows what they are for you. But these idols that we've made friends with instead of waged war against, what are we trying to add to our lives instead of putting the gospel there? What are we adding to our lives to make Jesus a little more palatable? Our hearts are idle factories, John Calvin said. Or so I've heard, actually, I, don't, I haven't read much of him. I hear people quote it a lot. But our hearts are always spitting out idol after idol because worship is so central to who you are that you're walking around with your spiritual umbilical cord just swinging around, looking to plug into something to give you life and to give you nourishment. John even does it in this passage in, in chapter 19, that, that, part, that portion that we read there. This angel's showing him all this stuff, and John then bows down to worship at this angel, and the angel's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Worship God. The angel had the grace to tell John not to do that. Your idols aren't going to do that for you. They're going to say, give me more. Keep worshiping me more and more. They're going to take and take and take from you. We see this all in scripture. The psalmist says this. We worship these idols who have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. They have mouths but they can't speak. And you have become like what you worship. Whatever you worship, y'all, you're going to end up looking like it. If it's money, you're going to look like money. If it's success, you're going to look like success. If it's a family, you're going to get what you want. In the end, it's going to take you down. These idols don't care about you. This is why the angel says to John, Keep, no, worship God, don't worship me. God can love you back. I can't. I didn't do any of this. He did. But again, our idols don't treat us that way. They just use us until they're done with you, and then like a tapeworm, they come out, and then they go find something else to feed on. And they leave you malnourished and dying and not thinking twice about you. And this is why, friends, we have to be taught how to worship. This is what repentance is. This is the prodigal realizing he's wanting pig food when his dad has a smokehouse full of brisket. 
So if worship is at the center of heaven, and that's at the center of who we are, then what do we do? What do we do with this? This is our last point this morning. What does this mean? I know that worship is formative. I even know that I should, if I dare to say that word, want to do this. But as I said earlier, what I want to say to the angel is, sure, worship in heaven looks easy, but my dad left my mom. Worship in heaven looks easy, but that that man abused me. Worship in heaven looks easy, but I just got fired. Worship in heaven looks easy, but covenant just got shot up. Am I supposed to worship? I grew up in the worship wars, probably like all y'all, I'm a recovering Baptist. And like, um, if you've seen Nate Bargatze's latest special, he talks about growing up as an 80s and 90s Christian, which is the most Christian. And, <laughs> and I've always thought, if I'm honest, and if I can be honest with y'all, I probably won't be asked back, it's fine. I don't like worship services. I don't like them. I don't like people throwing their hands up. I don't like people dancing around. It's weird. Look, if you do that, that's fine. Just know I think it's weird. Like, I'm probably wrong. My wife would say, yes, you are. Life is hard, and I'm tired. And if heaven is this eternal worship service, that sounds more like hell than it does heaven to me. And here's what the Bible says, at the center of heaven, this is your motivation for worship. Because obligation rarely means motivation. You know this. If you feel obligated to do something, you're probably not going to do it. And the Bible is so kind. Jesus is so kind to us that he says, I know that about you. So let this be your motivation, that at the center of heaven lies this lamb who appeared to be slain. This blood-soaked lamb is what they are worshiping. They're worshiping the Jesus with his throat slit. That means Jesus knows pain. They're worshiping the Jesus that knows betrayal. They're worshiping the Jesus who knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back, the one who knows what it's like to be stabbed in the side. He knows hunger. He knows loneliness. He was tempted every way just like you are. So heaven isn't this pep rally where worship is just going on and on all the time. Worship in heaven is seeing the one who knew that you didn't want to worship him, and he died for you anyway. Worship is in heaven is knowing That Jesus knows this about you. You are the worst. And I married you anyway. Let that be your motivation, he says. He knows that you're the worst. And he still chose to marry you. He knows that you sinned. He knows that you ran 5,000 miles away from him. And he still chased you. My friend Les Newsom says that heaven is a place that is full of people who were once God's enemies. He brings them all in, even you, even myself. Revelation 6, uh, which we'll get to soon, I think, shows us in the midst of this worship service that there are these martyrs who are crying out, Lord, how long? How much longer? Will you avenge us? Will you get rid of evil? How much longer? Friends, those are questions of worship. Your doubts are worship questions. And Jesus says, bring on your doubts. 
He wants the real you because the real you is the you that he died for. Not the you that has it all together because that you doesn't exist. It's not even the you that worships worship that he's after. Worship, worshiping worship can be just as easily an idol as anything else. Man, I feel bad, so I'm going to throw on elevation and get on a treadmill and run through the tears. That'll make me feel better. It might, but probably not. Treadmills are stupid. <laughs> but Jesus is saying to you, it's me that you need to come to. It's me that you're after. So don't run to all these other things. Even if they appear good, still, what you're looking for is me. So even this thought of chasing this idea, man, I really need to worship, so I better do it because I'm feeling anxious. Jesus is saying, don't put your hope in that. That's going to land you in hell right next to Hitler and the guy who invented icebreaker questions. It's going to take you there. I don't know if he's there, but probably. True worship is throwing down who you are in submission to Jesus, which means that true worship is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you thinking that the world revolves around you, admitting to yourself and everyone else around you that it doesn't. This is what true worship is going to do. It's going to mean that you toss your moral resume in the trash and you run to Jesus and who he says about you. And that's too hard. It's too hard. That's why idolatry is easier. Robert Capon says this about grace. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will buy case lots of moral advice, grosses of guilt-edged prohibitions, skids of self-improvement techniques, and hold truckloads of transcendental hot air, but it will not buy free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb grace doesn't sell that's why heaven's not packed out but let's pretend for a second that um, the idol of your choice can actually get you what you want whether it's self-discovery whether it's money whether it's well-adjusted kids let's pretend for a second that you can actually get that and then what you just have to keep performing that just puts you on the road back to you, and that's a terrible road to be on. Because you have to keep one-upping yourself all the time. Imagine for a second that it can get you what you want. Then what do you do? It's been said that the atheist's greatest dilemma is when something great happens to him, he has no one to thank. This is what this means. Who do we thank when all these gifts are given to us? Scripture says, come to Jesus. He's the only one who doesn't buckle under the weight of who you are. Your idols can't do it. Your family can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Your kids won't do it. Jesus is the only one who doesn't buckle under the weight of who you are. He's the only one truly designed to handle all of your sin and all of your shame because he did. All that was poured out on him on the cross of Calvary and he says, I will never bring it up again. I'm going to set them as far as the east is from the west to you. Friends, let us worship that Jesus. Let that be the center of our worship this morning. The one who welcomes kids and tells us we have to be like them if we want to be in his kingdom. 
the one who sat with a woman at a well and didn't shame her, but turned her into an evangelist, the one who told a bunch of nerds that caught this woman in adultery that if you are without sin, then you throw the first stone, the one who turned over tables because he was mad, the one who stood over a city crying because he was sad. Let's worship that Jesus, the one who looks at you with pornless eyes, the one who doesn't see you as an object to be used, but instead sees you as an object of his affection. The one who sits with you in your pain, the one who holds a bottle full of your tears and promises to wipe away the last one. And after that last tear falls, we'll dwell with him forever. Friends, that is better than whatever nonsense idols you have. And it's a far better message than what they're telling you. It's an invitation. Let's turn to Jesus, the great lover of our souls, and let us worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father God, I have a hard time believing what I just said. Because I know that before I leave the parking lot, I'm going to turn my worship somewhere else. So Father God, would you, would you have mercy on us? Uh, would you really... Would you really do that for us? Would you really do it for me? King Jesus, would you show us that though the wrong seems all so strong, God is the ruler yet. Lord, we just sang it. Would you drill that truth down into our hearts? Would you drill that truth down into our hearts like dynamite in a rock and let it blow up all those idols that we think can love us back? Uh, Jesus, you're the only one capable of that. Uh, And that's scary. Uh, And it's also so freeing. Uh, So Jesus, as we suffer, as we wait, uh, as we wonder, would you fill our hearts with wonder? Um, Wonder at who you are. Uh, Wonder at who you are. Wonder at what you've done. Let us see the world uh, through your eyes. And we would leave here rejoicing because you've done such a great thing. Uh, It's in your name we do pray. Amen.